0: Welcome to THK, to our final episode of this block, season, whatever you want to call it. Uh, I'm Sebastian Godet. as usual, I'm joined by Dustin Mills. Hi. Um, We decided we wanted to do something that was a little bit different this time around. Instead of talking about movies that we're well acquainted with, or talking about artists that we're well acquainted with, we talk about stuff that almost nobody ever talks about or knows anything about and uh we dug up three uh pretty obscure tokusatsu films and we're looking forward to discussing them with you Ah, uh, well listen we're looking forward to you hearing us discuss them
1: <laughs> yeah you don't get to participate
0: c- no you don't it's not that we don't care about your opinions it's just that we care more about our own
1: well i don't care about their opinions <laughs> you speak for yourself
0: <laughs> fair enough um so our first movie that we're going to discuss is from 1991. You had seen this one before, Dustin, right? Correct, yeah. Yeah, Mika Droid, or uh, Robo Kill Beneath Disco Club Layla, mm. which is an amazing, amazing title. <laughs> uh, I don't know if the movie necessarily lives up to that title, but it has a lot of good, good stuff that we're going to get to. But basically the story is that uh, during World War II, a mad scientist played by Masato Ibu, who's probably best known for his role in Empire of the Sun, but I know him as the guy who knocks over the chessboard in Godzilla vs. (laughs) Megaguirus. He, um, creates three robots, two of which are kind of humanoid, they have all their humanity still in check, and one who looks like a cool steampunk samurai android who carries around a katana and a gun. Uh... Years later, after the war, they build a disco club above this laboratory, and the androids are awake, awoken, and the samurai one goes on a rampage beneath it. I think that sums it up pretty well. Yeah, that's Dustin, pretty much it. what did you think of Mika Droid this time around?
1: Um, I actually enjoyed it more this time than when I watched it previously, because I knew what to expect this time. Because... Mika droid is sort of even though it feels like it's building to a climactic final battle it's not really like a fight scene kind of movie it's it's structured a little more oddly enough like a like an Italian slasher film yeah. uh so it's more about the stylishness of the kills and they are stylish and um I also appreciated this time around how surprisingly soulful the 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 story actually is and the characters actually are um i mean don't get me wrong this is a this is like a 75 minute straight to video japanese horror movie but it's like one of those like um if this is a b movie it's an a of the b's you know what i mean like i think it it stands a little taller than movies of a similar ilk so yeah this time around i i i really liked it quite a bit actually and i and i appreciated um the minutia a little more the the filmmaking, the storytelling, the style choices. Um, it's not like a slam bang action movie, which I think the title suggests. It's not like the Terminator, which it kind of feels like in the beginning. Uh, but uh, it's an interesting little oddity. I I don't know. I liked it quite a bit. What did you think?
0: Yeah, I really. I think I messaged you while I was watching it because we we try not to discuss our thoughts on these movies yeah. till we're recording the show. But I said it's got really good style and vibes to it it does feel very italian it's very dreamlike in its approach to the kills especially you could tell that there was like a heavy euro horror influence with it which kind of clashes with the title because the first time you told me about it i thought it was going to be this crazy thing where like a robot's going through a disco club slicing necks and there would be blood geysers everywhere it's not that kind of movie
1: but no, for it's... what it
0: is it, it is very effective
1: it's more interested in its own kind of sci fi trappings than um than the actual splatter, but that's not to say that like the splatter we get isn't interesting or cool like the kind of kills on display in Mika droid are are they're i'm not a I'm not a kill count guy, I'm not a gorehound you know this about me, mm-hmm. but like when they're executed as artfully as they are in a movie like Mika droid, that's my jam. I really like that kind of thing like. Um, the guy who gets machine gunned and continues to skateboard and then, like, skateboards yeah. out of the darkness. Like, he's dead, but he's fully upright on his skateboard, like, riding it as a dead body. Or the woman who gets sliced up for a really long time and, like, it ends up shredding her clothes to the point where she's nude but completely red because she's covered on her own blood. And she's sort of dancing in, like, slow motion. It's, like, the dreamiest part of the movie. It's very strange. That's my favorite scene in the movie. I, I really loved that kill. I think like the one thing I do wish is, um, so you have basically you have Mika droid, um, which I don't know if they ever actually call him that in the movie. Um, but you have the robot who to me looks like more like a football player than a, um, than a samurai. (laughs) (laughs) I can see that. And he's got a big dumpy robot, butt, which is also a theme because there's a big dumpy robot, butt in, um, in ultra Q as well. But, uh, uh, you have that guy, you have the two other super soldiers who are, like, trying to stop him, right? And um, I would have liked to have seen more with the two other super soldiers. I wanted, I would have liked to have seen what makes them super soldiers because all we really get is that they're immortal, that, like, they can't die naturally. Mm-hmm. When one of them does die, he reverts to, like, a desiccated corpse in a really cool special effects sequence. Um and then the other one has like metallic insect legs that like sprout out of his body. Yeah. No. Um. I would have liked to have seen more. I and and the like monkey brain part of me would have liked to have seen a really stellar Tokusatsu fight scene at the end instead of just like a, like a hug. Basically, it's like a death hug. Yeah. That ends the movie. Um. But I don't know. I now even the more I talk about it, the more I like it. I this this one is. It's just right up my alley. I, I really, really like this kind of flick. I like that it's seventy-five minutes long. Um, I like that it has ideas and it gets them out in an effective way. Um, I don't know. It's the kind of movie that I that I like to make. I think uh, mm-hmm. kind of like a glorified short film, basically, like more more concept and idea than actual substance. Um, Beyond yeah, well, we've, go we've ahead.
0: talked about this before in our own conversations, where you know sometimes style really is the substance and i do think this is one of those situations
1: for sure sure. and i'm like trying to like call back to things that like i love in the flashback in the opening when they flash back to world war ii it's in that stark silver black and white and they keep using like still frames like photos to to accent things um it was very like manga inspired i think Mm. and i really really dug all that like there's just there's little things like that peppered all throughout the film like it's a really interesting watch
0: I really loved the relationship between the two super soldiers. And I loved the backstory that they were athletes together, that they'd known each other prior to the experiment. It really added a good emotional core to the craziness surrounding them and, you know, being what they are.
1: Yeah. That's where the, I think the soul of the movie comes from is from the one. Um, I mean, both of the, the super soldier characters for sure, but the one who ends up surviving, you know, all the, almost all the way to the end. Um, he has i don't know that character has the most interesting things to say he's the most developed character in the entire thing because a lot of the other characters especially the ones who get killed are i mean they're they're less than paper thin they just show up to die uh basically yeah they're
0: they're fodder for the titular character yeah which ever since you mentioned it i'm i'm trying to think back now if they ever do call that thing by name or if they just thought that was cool
1: yeah i don't i don't i was trying to it's probably one of those things where like they had the idea for the robot first and then built a movie around it you know what i mean like somebody drew a picture and they were like oh let's make a movie about this thing and you know and maybe it was called mika droid back then but i don't i don't remember them ever actually saying it
0: well this is you see i'm gonna lean more towards that because this is one of those movies who's directed by somebody who is an effects artist first and a director Mm. second yeah uh the director was Tomo Haraguchi, who had uh, some credits on a few, I think, obscure late 80s Japanese horror movies. But he would o- kind of go on to be a lower tier to mid-tier toku director in his own right. He did Kibakichi, the werewolf samurai movie, mm, okay. he did uh, Death Kappa.
1: Which is not very good, but he did make Death Kappa. Neither is Kibakichi, by the way. (laughs) Kibakichi's better than Death Kappa, though. That might be true. I haven't seen Death Kappa.
0: And he directed a few episodes of Ultraman Ginga, which I haven't watched past the first episode.
1: I've seen a little bit of it, but not all of it.
0: Yeah. So, this is somebody who had a background in toku and doing effects work so i'm leaning more towards the end of he designed this robot and then tried to build a story around it
1: first which honestly is not a not a bad way to do things i mean as long as the story you build around it is interesting right like yeah i mean 90 percent of my
0: ideas come from i want to do this monster and i need to have it exist in some (laughs) kind of world i guess so
1: yeah 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 (laughs) well i feel like it's it's like a it's like an old joke of like you know, back in the day Corman would like have a poster designed first and then make the movie. And Yeah. It it was always a joke that like that was like a corny way to do it. But I don't know, I kind of dig that idea. Like, let's start with the imagery or let's start with this piece of art and see what it, it inspires as far as the story goes. Now I don't know that Corman was always doing that. I think that there was more, you know, strategic, monetary reasons they did that. But I don't know. I don't think it's a terrible way to do things. No, I agree. I think that
0: Sometimes if you have a strong visual element to build your script upon, you get a better script that way than if you come up with your visuals after the fact. For sure. I've been, I was trying to do some research on Mika Droid earlier today, because like I said, with these more obscure Toku movies, especially when it comes to like the cinema of the 90s, there's not a lot to go off of. But from what I understand, it has a small following. It did have a DVD release over here. And I think that it's probably due to the fact that it does have such a strong title. It's one of those titles that I think when a Westerner thinks of a crazy Japanese movie, they think of a title like Robo Kill Beneath Disco Club Layla. <laughs> yeah. If that means if you know what I mean.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, but like we said, it's like it's really not that I mean that's why I I have the DVD. I got it it's a secondhand former rental from like mm-hmm. Blockbuster or something that I have and um that's why i bought it i was like i i was like into sushi typhoon type stuff at the time i assumed this was going to be like that um and it wasn't and i still liked it the first time i watched it but i watching it this time i definitely appreciated it more yeah it's
0: uh it's definitely not that kind of thing but you could see like elements where it could have leaned into that so i i would be curious to see mika droid brought back maybe in a sequel or somebody wanted to remake this and kind of lean more into that side of it i think that there'd be room for both
1: it it could use a dash of action even if it's just a Mm -hmm. a great final battle it could use a little bit more than what's there
0: i had no uh noted earlier that masato ibu plays the doctor in the opening scenes in the laboratory uh, the rest of the cast, from what I could figure out, wasn't that notable, except for the fact that the security guard is played by Doku uh, Dokumamushi, who okay. was a regular on the original Ultraman series.
1: Oh, okay.
0: Which is fun, because one of the movies that we're going to be doing in a bit here is also very heavily linked to Ultraman.
1: I also really, I actually like that character. That character stood out for me because he's yeah. just so friendly with everybody like yeah that's just his character from Ultraman too <laughs> I, <laughs> and I really like the scene where the two super soldiers like have to knock him out and tie him up but they apologize to him they're like yeah we'll, we'll let you out when we're done but like they're all dead so like he's just still tied up in that booth probably <laughs> yeah. you know I hadn't thought of that I hope somebody found him the yeah, next morning I'm sure morning. somebody did he was friendly people liked him
0: did you have any closing thoughts on Mika Droid?
1: No, I I feel like I, I I don't have a lot to say, and I kind of said all I had to say. I would, I would just I I would encourage. It's a little hard to find, but I would encourage people to to seek it out if you if you like tokusatsu and if you like um, just Japanese like filmed storytelling because um, it's different than most of the other things you'll find. I just think it's worth a watch. Like it might. It's one of those things where if you're a creative type and you watch it, it might wake up something in your brain and inspire you to, like, create something like it. You know what I mean? So, that's all I have to say.
0: Cool. Well, our second movie is probably the most well-known one of the three. That's why I kind of put it dead in the center. It's originally called Yamato Takaru, which is a more accurate title, but over here it's known as Orochi the Eight-Headed Dragon, uh, it was directed by uh, what's this? sorry I have this name here. There we go, Tako Okawara, and it was released in 1994. Dustin, what is Orochi about?
1: Um, well, Orochi, as I understand it, is is steeped in Shinto mythology, um, which makes it kind of a confusing movie to follow, and it moves at a breakneck pace. Um, essentially. In ancient Japan, uh, a pair of twins are born to royalty. Uh, The father arbitrarily decides he hates one of the twins and sends his evil uh, psychic grand vizier type guy, his Grima Wormtongue Jafar from Aladdin type guy, to hurl the baby off a mountain. But the baby is rescued by a kaiju and then raised by its aunt. And then it comes back and essentially wants to be, you know, part of the family again. But dad is like, look, there are these barbarians knocking at our door. If you take care of the barbarians, you can come back. So he goes on an adventure. Uh, He takes care of the barbarians, but his dad is still a dick and doesn't want him back. (laughs) And um, eventually a naked-headed dragon shows up that was on, well, floating through space, but then on the moon and uh yeah so that's i don't i don't know seb this one <laughs> the next two movies that we're talking about there's a there's a lot going on in them um especially in Orochi because Orochi is like you know how sometimes they'll take like a an entire season of an anime and they'll condense it into a movie mm-hmm. and sometimes that works but more often it's just like a hyper frantic cliff's notes version of like a better longer story Mm -hmm. that's what orochi felt like to me i felt like i was getting like 40 volumes of shinto mythology crammed into an hour and 40 minutes um and it's a lot it's a lot to take in
0: yeah yeah it sure is but it looks really cool sometimes
1: sometimes it does (laughs) (laughs) We've we've talked a lot in the past about how, um, and I don't, actually, I didn't look into this, so I don't know if this is true for Orochi, but for a lot of tokusatsu productions, there are two directors. There is a director handling, handling the special effects, and there's a director handling, like, the, the scenes that happen between the special effects, right? Mm-hmm. And all of the special effects stuff is, like, right on par or above average for what you could expect from, like, mid-90s like Heisei-era tokusatsu. Like, it's it's well done. It all looks cool. Every time there's a monster, it's fun. You get the, the like, classic 90s special effects techniques, including some really dopey-looking morphing effects, and all that stuff is fun. The other stuff, the stuff that's not a battle or um, a monster, is really, really bland. Like, shot for coverage, shot like it's for a TV show... Which is really unfortunate because the production design from the sets to the costumes are all exceptional, but I feel like the the actual direction fails it a lot of times and 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 piled on top of that is just that the movie is a is there's a lot there's a lot happening. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I agree about the direction. Uh originally Kaneko, Shisuke Kaneko, who did the Gamera trilogy, uh was supposed to direct this one. Oh man. I, it was going it was going to be him and Shinji Higuchi. Originally. Oh man. Yeah. And uh they left to work on Gamera instead.
1: Well at least we got Gamera.
0: Exactly. Uh I don't think that uh Tako is a bad director necessarily he's just a very by the numbers one and this is not the kind of film that really calls for by the numbers direction
1: no this is this is competent filmmaking Mm. but competent in the sense that there's not a lick of style involved in a lot of it it is just we got the coverage this will assemble in the edit and that's as much thought was put into a lot of it
0: That being said, I do have a lot of fun with this one. It kind of feels like the Japanese tokusatsu equivalent to something like Clash of the Titans or like one of the Harryhausen Sinbad movies. That's the vibe it gave me throughout. I got
1: the Sinbad vibe, but it also reminded me a little bit of like the, um, um, you have to forgive me because I forget the director's name, but the Doug McClure uh, monster movies, um, like At the Earth's Core Yeah, land that time forgot like it also gave me those vibes I think just because it was monster suits instead of stop motion it reminded me of those but yeah I definitely yeah, I got the that. Harryhausen vibe yeah I could
0: see that um, it, I think that ultimately because I grew up watching a lot of that stuff I loved anything that was fantasy related and I loved the Harryhausen movies the Edgar Rice Burroughs adaptations I got so much of that energy out of this that I walked away really having enjoyed Orochi that being said, it is a big heaping mess of a movie. And I will not lie, I don't understand. Maybe 40% of it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can't... It's weird. I have a weird relationship with it. I can't... I can't say that I liked it at the end of the day, but I was never bored while watching it. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. I think it's impossible to be bored by watching it because there's a, a fight scene or a spell being cast or a monster like... Every couple of minutes, and like the the production design of the entire thing is gorgeous. And then on top of that, there's just some really cool concepts. Like there's you know there's a couple villains in in the film. Um, one of them is Orochi himself in human form, um, mm-hmm. who's some kind of malevolent space god, I guess. Um, and then you find out that like the 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 psychic uh, royal consultant guy that I talked about before who's going to throw the baby off of the off the mountain, who serves as the main villain for most of the movie, you find out that he's actually, like, a fang in human form that belongs to Orochi that fell to Earth, which is just a really weird and cool concept so that when Orochi returns he reverts back to being a fang he's just, like, this giant fang um, which is just, like, wild and, like, that's the shit I love to see in, in Japanese cinema, specifically, like tokusatsu stuff so there's there's a lot going on here, like it's weird. Um, like I said, I didn't like it, but I would also kind of recommend people watch it because there's so much interesting shit going on. I mean, yeah. If I was, uh, I
0: wish I had seen this when I was ten years old because it would have melted my brain. Yeah, uh,
1: I, I was thinking too. I was like, a kid would love this.
0: Yes. Um, if oh, not, maybe even if they couldn't follow the plot there's like you said a monster every 10 minutes there's a big fight scene or a sword fight every 10 minutes and when there is a monster on screen that monster looks pretty fucking cool
1: yeah yeah they're like you know they're they're top tier heisei monster suits um i i can't even imagine the nightmare it probably was puppeteering orochi himself who's basically mm-hmm. basically godora with eight heads
0: yeah, and they went all out on it, too. Like, they had the main Orochi puppet creature. They had the big life-size heads that the main actor could stab into. Like, there's a lot going on effects-wise that just made me really happy to see.
1: Seb got some bright green monster goop spraying yes. out. <laughs> yes.
0: Although, Orochi's only my second favorite monster in the whole thing. My favorite is that tentacled Gillman thing that comes out of the ocean.
1: That thing's awesome. I also love the shape-shifting lava guy. That he fights oh. in the Barbarian place. Um, yeah,
0: in the Rancor pit.
1: Yeah, yeah, basically is the Rancor <laughs> pit. I like him because like, he just, like, parts of his body morph. Like, he turns one hand into a bow and then three of his fingers into arrows to shoot at the... And it's, like, bad 90s morphing effects, which is awesome. Um, I kept waiting. The main character, a couple of times throughout the movie, um, uh, he, uh, like, kind of shapeshifts a little bit. Like... He grows hair out of his face. He gets, like, a gnarly demon face. And I was like, oh, by the end, is he going to go full monster? It doesn't really happen so much. Um, but that stuff was cool, too. Like, him, like, shooting laser beams out of his eyes and looking like demon cop was fun. So, Well, you know, it, this was intended to be the first part of a trilogy. Oh. So I'm sure
0: that at some point down the line he would have become a monster. But this thing bombed so hard and toho was so upset that they just buried <laughs> it after the fact
1: well it had to be expensive like it is a very yeah big budget looking tokusatsu movie yeah
0: it underperformed it actually lost out to godzilla versus space godzilla which is shameful because <laughs> <laughs> that's that's probably the worst heisei godzilla movie so
1: yeah i don't know i like that one you know how i am about the heisei godzilla movies <laughs> yeah this guy directed a lot of them he directed uh
0: godzilla vs. mothra he directed uh i think he directed godzilla versus mecha godzilla 2 and then his last film before retiring from direction was godzilla 2000 so he's a guy who had a lot of knowledge when it yeah. came to doing toku stuff and he loved fantasy films he was quoted as saying godzilla movies need more fantasy elements in them so i'm shocked to see how flat his direction actually is yeah.
1: did he direct did he have anything to do with the mothra trilogy the heisei mothra trilogy do you know
0: I don't think he did.
1: That's surprising because those seem like they're right up his alley. Cause those are like such a mix of like fantasy elements and, and Toku stuff.
0: I know he directed Godzilla versus Mothra, Godzilla versus Mechagodzilla 2, Orochi, the eight headed dragon, Godzilla versus Destroya, Godzilla 2000. And then he retired.
1: Well, to be fair, other than Mechagodzilla 2, which is kind of a stinker, he directed the pretty much the better Heisei era movies. Like uh, yeah. Godzilla versus Mothra, will- colon battle for earth is actually my favorite of those and um i lo- i'm a huge godzilla 2000 defender so
0: me too i i rewatched that pretty recently and that is actually a well-directed movie it is it and it's have, very yeah.
1: ambitious visually i like that movie
0: it's almost spielbergian we'll have to do a godzilla 2000 episode at some point i think because there's a lot to yeah, talk about for sure. that maybe, one.
1: i was thinking um maybe we should do a in between seasons do like a special episode or two just to to focus yeah. on something we like.
0: Yeah, I like that idea. You know, back to Orochi. It makes almost no sense, but that's okay <laughs> because it looks really cool. There's yeah. a giant eight head dragon, and it looks awesome. It's, and it breathes uh, real got... fire. It breathes real fire. They yeah. didn't care. That's what. <laughs> hey, that's what living in a country with no film union will do for you.
1: <laughs> sure, we'll we'll spray actual napalm out of this highly flammable puppet. Why not? <laughs>
0: We it'll save us money so we don't have to do opticals later on yeah <laughs> yeah. I don't have a ton to say about Orochi it's a fun fantasy movie if you can get over the muddled lore and like how much it kind of relies on you being aware of Shinto mythology
1: I think that's, I th- that was the biggest stumbling stone for me it's like I know nothing about you know sh- like Shinto as a religion or any of their mythology or anything I'm totally ignorant when it comes to that stuff and I feel like if I was more learned in the subject, then a lot of the like mythological shorthand they're using would make more sense to me.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I kind of just tune that stuff out, dude. Like I just zone (laughs) out after a while. (laughs) That's why when I talk about a movie I like, and somebody points out, you know, well, what did you think of this? It'll be something I didn't like. And it's because I zoned out during it.
1: Yeah. I was, you know, it was weird. I was actually thinking about that recently where I was just like, is while I was watching Ultra Q because I kept getting hung up on, um, we'll get into it, but I kept getting hung up on details and like trying to remember stuff. And I was like, do I really need to be like watching this? Like I'm studying for an exam and that's how I watch everything. And I was just, I I just kind of miss like, I was thinking about how much I miss being a kid and just watching things like just and just living in the like present experience of watching the thing I'm watching. And I want to get that back without the aid of chemicals because there are some chemicals that help me do that. But (laughs) it would be cool to be able to do it without those chemicals. I think I'm somewhere between that where I can
0: just sit back and allow myself to get lost in something, but I will get hung up on
1: very specific things. Yeah. So. I just have like a frustratingly like analytic and deconstructing brain that I have a hard time turning off. Um, oddly enough, like, one of the reasons I like Toku is because a lot of them are very easy watches, and it's easy to do that, but, um, I'd say two of the three movies we watched this this go-around really challenged that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, if you have nothing else to say
0: about Orochi, I think we can move on to my personal favorite of the three movies. Okay, let's
1: talk about Ultra Q.
0: Yeah, Ultra Q, the movie Legend of the Stars, which, uh, is, as the title would have you believe, meant to be a film adaptation slash reboot of the Ultra-Q series. Before we get into the movie itself, do you mind just giving us a rundown of what Ultra-Q was, Dustin?
1: Sure. And this is just going off what I've seen of the original series. I I haven't seen the revival series from a few years ago, and I haven't seen all of the original series. But my take on Ultra-Q is, um, the easiest way to explain it is it's sort of like the Japanese equivalent of the Twilight Zone, or The Outer Limits. Um, it's an episodic, uh, black and white, at least in the early episodes, um, horror sci-fi anthology series. Um, each episode tackling a different sci-fi subject. Some Often, but not always, involving a kaiju of some sort. There's often a giant monster. Not always. Sometimes it's like, oh... Uh, we've shrunk people. And this episode is about shrunken people. It just, Mm -hmm. it's very, very, very much like outer limits or twilight zone. Um, it also was the, like the show that basically birthed the Ultraman franchise and Ultraman outgrew it and became like the, the, the monolith that it is now where ultra Q kind of mostly faded into the background only to rear its head every once in a while.
0: Yeah. That's a good way of summing it up. Um, it's basically just, the outer limits if it had a big toku set piece every episode yeah um this film was an attempt to kind of spark it back in the early 90s um Tsuburaya Productions which at the time was headed by Akira Subaraya, who Dustin and I know for having produced some of the worst <laughs> fucking anime
1: that yeah, has ever he, been. <laughs> he's, the, he's the embarrassing uh, Subaraya son who made a lot of really bad <laughs> anime in the 90s. Um, he produced this,
0: and uh, thank God he didn't do much else beyond that. Um, the approach to Ultra Q, the movie, is pretty interesting. The plot follows a group of reporters, much like in the original series, who are investigating a series of murders that are, you know, being committed against people working on a big land development project in Japan. And, you know, of course there's a supernatural element. The murders are being committed by a strange robotic woman and her giant monster pet. And that is about the simplest way I can explain Ultra Q, the movie, because it gets so... What's the word for?
1: Esoteric. In, I was about to say in the weeds, like in the weeds. Yeah. <laughs> it gets. Yeah, there's a like ah, man. There's a there's a lot. There's a lot going on in this movie. Yeah.
0: So I think it's impossible to talk about Ultra Q the movie without talking about its director Akio Jisoji, who is Ultraman royalty. He directed the very best episodes of the original series. Um, he's also. On top of being a noted Tokusatsu director, also a very famous art house filmmaker, he's best known in Japan for his Buddhist trilogy of erotica films. Uh, he's known for tackling themes of Japanese society, traditionalism ver- uh, versus modernity, stuff like that. And there's a lot of that in this, and it feels like it feels like he was really allowed to let loose, for better or worse, on the property.
1: Yeah, I, the, so the funny thing about Ultra Q the movie is that it's sort of, you, it feels like it has a message and the message is very unclear and, but you trust the movie to like deliver the succinct version of that message by the end. But I got bad news for you. It doesn't really. In fact, it kind of contradicts itself a couple times, but I don't think unintentionally. I feel like the vagueness is on purpose. At least I, I, I hope it is um, because it's hard to believe that a movie that is so well directed and well shot could be this kind of scatterbrained mm-hmm. on accident. Um, you know, you mentioned the direct, I, I, I mean, I haven't watched a ton of classic Ultraman, but I've watched a lot of video essays about classic Ultraman and seeing some of the camera work and the experimental editing and things like that, I was like, I'm sure this is one of the guys they talk about in those essays because the things the camera does, the edits, everything is I don't even know if experimental is, is like a fair way to put it. Um but like Mika Droid, it's super, super stylish. And um I think that stylishness is one of the saving graces of the movie because you're going to spend a lot of the movie listening to people talk about what the movie may or may not be about <laughs> yeah it's
0: i don't know if experimental is what i would call it i guess if you wanted to like, put some kind of terminology over it avant-garde would probably be yeah that the probably terminology fits yeah uh you mentioned the way that some of those episodes of Ultraman and the way this movie are shot being very similar. There's a lot of use of like wide-angle lenses, a lot of really striking shot composition, use of symmetry here and there. Mm-hmm. It's it looks unlike any other kaiju movie I've ever seen. I think it's the closest thing we've got to a proper art house kaiju flick in that sense.
1: That's a really but, good good way of explaining it to someone. Like if you were going to show someone Ultra Q and you told them you were, they were about to watch an art house kaiju movie, they might actually be prepared to watch it. <laughs> that makes sense.
0: Yeah, it's... I'm not a big Terrence Malick fan, but a lot of scenes brought Terrence Malick to mind, especially with the Islanders and like their ceremony standing on the shoreline, stuff like that. Yeah. The way it lingers on that stuff. It was good. It was my kind of artsy nonsense. <laughs> which, uh, which I revel in. Yeah. Um... <laughs> We're talking a lot about like the artistic component, which probably goes to show how comparatively the kaiju slash toku element of it kind of pales in comparison, at least for me. There's not a ton of it, but when uh, Narita, the giant monster, does appear in the movie, eh, it's alright. It, I don't know if those scenes really warrant the build-up they get, if you know what I mean.
1: Yeah, they are... Um... This is the reverse of o- Orochi, where the toku scenes are competent but lack style Mm -hmm. but the rest of the movie is like stylish and deft like really really well executed um both by the actors and the filmmakers um but yeah i would agree like there's there's really only two um instances where the monster attacks and both are fine um Mm -hmm. but there's no like you know we've talked about clever filmmaking a lot in the past on on the on the podcast and um there's not a lot of that it's more just like cut to monster cut to reaction mm-hmm. um everything the monster's doing looks good, but he doesn't really do anything besides you know stomp buildings and breathe fire you know he does what you expect a toku monster to do and and not not much else and he's also maybe has five minutes of screen time total design
0: wise I was really glad that for as strange and weird as the movie is, they kept the design very much in tune with what a Subaraya monster in Ultra Q would look like. It looks a lot like uh, Gamora or Gomez or one of those things.
1: He he reminded me of Gamora a lot. And um, yeah, I could totally see him like being used in like a like filler episode of any like Ultraman show, you know, like he didn't have a lot of personality or special abilities, but like if you just need a monster fight, he'll he'll fit the bill.
0: I did love his sleepy eyes.
1: Yes, he had very sleepy eyes. And they that's the one thing I feel like they toned down from your standard t- Tsuburaya affair, uh, where his eyes weren't quite cartoons. Because Tsuburaya likes yeah. cartoon monster eyes a lot.
0: In comparison, though, I thought that our main supernatural figure slash creature, uh, Tuzen, which is the android alien lady, who's more or less our main antagonist, sort of, kind of, I found her really compelling, both in her human form and in her effect form.
1: Yeah, I like the, um, so a lot of times when you see her early on in the film, it's just a silhouette, it's a shadow, but you can tell that it's not the shadow of an actual three-dimensional object. They're using, basically, um, in lighting, there's, um, things called, like, uh, there's gobos and cookies i've never quite understood the difference between the two but their, their main purpose is to cast a shadow right they're usually used on a spotlight and that's what her silhouette looks like like it looks like a 2d image being like projected through like onto a paper wall so you can see it on the other side or just the shadow like it's not quite realistic which lent it a really like unearthly kind of spooky vibe
0: yeah it definitely did add to like the dreamlike quality that came with her whenever she was on screen. It also gave those silhouette shots an almost uh, expressionistic vibe, like German expressionism or something like that.
1: For sure. Which vibes perfectly with just the way the movie is shot. Like there's like really weird, but deliberate shot compositions and, um, some edits and camera movements during conversations that like, I don't really think I've seen in a movie before that, um, again, as a creator, as a filmmaker, were kind of inspiring to me. It's like, when you see something, you go, oh, you're allowed to do that. If they're allowed to do that, I'm allowed to do that in my stuff, that kind of thing. Um, Seb, we we didn't talk about the other two movies that much, so we have a lot of time to talk about Ultra Q. Can you tell me what you think Ultra Q Legend of the Stars is about? Um, Yeah, I
0: think it is about you know i mentioned before that akio josoji was always focused on uh, the concepts of modern japan versus traditionalist japan i think that's obviously a key component water is there to kill off the land developers to keep them from destroying the land and you know it's a recurring line they would turn all of japan into a tourist attraction if they could like that's a pointed line that's repeated throughout the movie i think that the movie's about that clash and also about how neither side is correct
1: i'm glad you brought up that point because i basically came to the same conclusion but the aliens entire motivation starts to fall apart when you realize that they are colonizers like they they came to earth and like claimed a spot and now we're acting as if they have ownership over Earth and how Earth should be conducted. And they haven't even been on Earth for millennia other than their ancestors who've all but forgotten you know, who they were. So like, by the end, I was like, I get what these aliens were doing, but also fuck them for thinking they have the right to do it. Like, I don't know why they, they feel they have more ownership over the Earth or Japan than like the people of Japan do.
0: I just think that maybe they arrived there and thought they would do a better job with it and then were proven right.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, you know what it reminded me of a little bit by the end was, um, have you ever seen uh, the original 1951, The Day the Earth Stood Still?
0: Oh, it's just, yeah, I love that movie.
1: Yeah, just the concept of like, you know, there's an alien presence here willing to invite humanity to 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 live with them among the stars and to like communicate with the other you know alien uh species out there but earth is not ready yet and it's in by the end of that movie spoilers for a movie that's you know from 1951 but by the end of the movie the 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 main alien um is it Gort? Uh Klatu. Klatu, Gort's the robot, sorry. Yeah. Klatu uh is basically like listen, you can come join us but it's your choice. You have to, you have to make changes and I leave it up to you. Bye bye. And then like, he go, you know, he leaves. Yeah. And, um, ultra Q kind of, kind of ultimately ends in a similar fashion, except for the, the invitation isn't really present. I think, I think earth is abandoned at the end of that movie. Yeah. It's, it's a bittersweet
0: ending uh, leaning heavily on the bitter side because yeah. spoilers, uh, what is in decides it wasn't worthwhile and you know i have to go now my planet needs me (laughs) poochie died on the way back to his (laughs) home
1: poochie's dead
0: (laughs) um anyways it's it's grim it's grim but it kind of leaves things open enough that, you know, because it's Ultra Q and grim things happened in every episode and it always left it open enough for more grim stuff to happen. So you know that in the world of Ultra Q, even though this just happened, an alien tried so hard to fight for this planet and then left and abandoned it. That's not the worst thing that could possibly happen. Yeah. So I guess that's where I lean on the sweet side of it.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, she could have just like decimated the planet. Yeah. Um So I was un- I was unclear on something. The... um. The the version of of this movie that I watched the the monster was called Nagira, mm-hmm. um, but we may have had different subs or something like that because I think you said Narita.
0: Oh, that might that just might be my bad. I was typing notes as I was watching, which is never a good idea. I mean, it's
1: also just like I mean to be to be completely transparent, like there's no. I mean, this is actually true of Orochi too. There's no like strictly legal way to watch. Orochi or Ultra Q in the United United States or North America. You have to find it. You know what I mean? (laughs) So um, Ultra Q you can find pretty easily on YouTube. But um, it also, I mean, it's possible that there are different translations out there. Uh, Yeah, I know.
0: Because I'm pretty sure I watched a rip where it was called Nagira. I was just scrolling, scanning through it right now. So that was just my bad. Okay, I was kind of hoping there were
1: different translations, which means that like... You and I could have taken completely different, like, meanings from the movie because we watched different subs of it. Um, One thing I wanted to mention is that,
0: much like the old, uh, you know, we talked a lot about how weird and kind of dreamlike the movie is. But I did still think that of the three movies we watched, this had the most likable cast of characters. Oh, I yeah. The, w- ma-
1: the main characters were, were compelling and likable.
0: Yeah, they're all pretty great. Um, they're very reminiscent of the main group of characters from the, uh, the original series, Ultra-Q. Which, despite being an anthology show, did have a recurring cast.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, uh, something else I wanted to note, because in Mika Droid, I mentioned we had uh, a cameo appearance by an Ultraman veteran. In this one, we get two. We get Akiji Kobayashi, who was also the professor in the original Common Rider series.
1: Okay. He
0: shows up as one of the investigators in the opening scene. And uh, Susumi uh, Kurobe, who played Shin Hayata, the original Ultraman, pops up in that same scene very briefly.
1: All right. So, Oh, what I was, what I was getting at with Nagira, by the way, was huh? I want to ask you, because I was unclear with this by the end. Is Nagira an ancient beast that was awoken, or is it a beast that the aliens use to destroy things? Since there's so much talk
0: about, like, the myths of the land that they were, like, investigating and whatnot, I assumed that it was a pre-existing thing that they were using. Okay. Yeah. I also like to assume that because it makes the world of the movie a little... a tiny bit more rich, which I'm always for.
1: Yeah, and in that case, I kind of almost wish that there was some kind... And maybe you're just as... you're just supposed to assume this because it's part of the Ultra Q series, but I Mm. kind of wish the movie had like a cold open of some kind or something to establish the world, like Mm -hmm. that there are monsters or there are strange things that go on. Um, as the movies presented, it's sort of just like, as far as we know, this is the first time anything weird has ever happened. You know what I mean? Yeah. But, um, there are a lot of cool ideas that I really love. And one of them is that, um, the, uh, one of the forms of the, the main antagonist lady. Cause she kind of goes between being like a Japanese woman in like really cool costume to, um, a like cyber silver, like hyper 1980s robot woman to like a dumpy little clay robot creature. Um, yes. The but don't go statue. Yeah. In her like, non-human form she has a laser but the laser is pressurized seawater which is just Mm. a really cool idea that i've seen repeated a few times in different things like in um metal gear solid 2 metal gear ray the mech in that game has a has a water laser Um, they're also just used in manufacturing but i just thought that was a really neat idea because part of the mystery in the beginning is like there are these people who are dead who have holes punched in them but like the hole is too big to have been a bullet and they're always soaked in seawater and they can't figure out what it is. And then eventually realizes that this, this robot woman from the stars has the ability to shoot seawater at such a high velocity. That's basically a laser, which is just a cool idea.
0: Yeah, it was. And the first time I watched this, it actually, because I, the first time I watched it, I went in completely cold, not knowing anything about it. It did add a fun element to the, to the mystery. Cause I didn't know what the killer would end up being.
1: Yeah, I had no idea what was going on either. I was like, are they being stabbed with ice? Like, what is happening? What is this? <laughs>
0: um, I don't know. It's one of those movies where there's so much to talk about from a uh, thematic standpoint or like an analytical standpoint. I really wish this thing would get a proper release. I don't think it will for a variety of reasons. The main is that the merchandise tie-in for this was done by uh sega instead of bandai and bandai now owns ultra and they don't like that another company had the merch rights to this so they kind of have buried it since then yeah which is a shame because i do think this thing could have a really good cult following if it was given the chance
1: yeah i also kind of wish that they had gone through with you know if this had been like the first in like a series of ultra q movies um, to see where it goes, to see you know if it ever touches back on some of the more open-ended stuff that they start in this one, um, mm-hmm. to have seen them like tackle different threats and oddities, like I would have liked to have seen that because Ultra Q itself, um, I mean, which I'm a sucker for this type of like TV show, like mm-hmm. uh, Kolchak the Night Stalker and the Twilight Zone and like that that kind of stuff. Um, the episodic anthology show where it's just like monster of the week or like concept of the week. I love that stuff. And uh, this really made me want to see ultra Q just come back. Like I know they tried a few years ago and it wasn't super successful. And I think it was only like 12 episodes or something, but I, I really think a show like this could work now. No, I agree. I think that
0: especially since like genre shows, horror series especially are so popular at the moment, I'm surprised that nobody at Subarai has jumped on it. Other than they're trying to veer towards younger audiences at the moment with all the ultra franchise stuff.
1: Yeah, yeah. Which I, mean, I will make it. A... Go ahead. Oh, sorry, go ahead. I was, I was, was just, just going to say ultra. <laughs> Son of a bitch. Say... <laughs> I was just gonna say Ultraman is basically their bread and butter. Like that's yeah, that's like 100 percent of their effort these days, pretty much, right?
0: Yeah. I just needed to correct myself because I got my notes mixed up here. When I said Shisuki Kaneko and Shinji Higuchi were supposed to work on Orochi, they were actually supposed to be working on this.
1: Oh. Okay. So, or,
0: this okay. was intended for Kaneko and Higuchi, and Jisoji took over after they both left over. I'm assuming creative differences.
1: Well then, you know, like, I actually... I I'm know, happy
0: I... Jisouji stuck with it.
1: Yeah, I, I am too. I don't. I don't know that the movie would actually be any. I, I mean, the kaiju scenes would probably be better if it was mm-hmm. that team. But the movie itself, I don't know if it would. I wouldn't. Definitely wouldn't be worse. It'd be different. Um, but I really like this. This vision. I'm. I'm sort of. I have mixed feelings on the movie overall, but there are elements of it that I really, really love, and a lot of it is the, the direction. I really like the filmmaking elements of this.
0: This time around, while I was watching it, I kept thinking of how good a nice HD transfer of it would look.
1: Me too. I was thinking that. I mean, this is my se- my first time ever watching it, and I thought the same thing.
0: Yeah. So, of the three movies, which one was your personal favorite?
1: It's Mika Droid, and I and yeah. I don't even I don't even think it's better than than Ultra Q. I think it's better than Orochi. Um, I don't. It's not. It's not that it's better than. Ultra Q, it just speaks to my soul a little more. It's more mm-hmm. of my my type of thing. Like those sh- short little, just tight, like. I sound like I'm about to be perverted or something, but like the. the just the, like. <laughs> I, I just love the like 75 minute fucking straight to video horror sci fi idea just like put out there. It's so plucky too, because you know it was low budget.
0: Mm-hmm. And it's
1: just like a plucky little movie that did a lot with a little and really capitalized on what it had going for it. I do wish that there was a scene where the robot at least enters the disco club. It's weird yeah. to me that they had that disco club set and the, the robot never goes in there. He's just always in the parking garage.
0: <laughs> Maybe they weren't allowed to make a mess in that location.
1: Could be. That could be it. And like nobody cared about the parking garage.
0: Yeah. Um. Well, my I said it before, my favorite of the three is Ultra Q. Yeah. I think that... It's the most Sebi of the three movies in a lot mm. of ways. Uh I, I can't remember if it was in our uh Higuchi episode or if it was in our Final Wars episode, but we talked about what it would be like if we did a Godzilla movie. Yeah. Ultra Q's the closest tonally to what my Godzilla would be
1: like. I thought that while watching it. I was like, if you if you let Seb make a like a moderately budgeted kaiju movie, it'd probably have like this kind of vibe. Like there for one thing, there'd definitely be, definitely be a lady antagonist monster of some kind but also yes. just like the the mixture of science fiction and spirituality um i think really vibes with you um yes so yeah i actually thought that while watching i was like this is very sebi. it's i feel like it's not as obnoxiously sebby as like other things but like it is very very sebi.
0: what's an example of something that's obnoxiously sebby,
1: <laughs> oh man i don't know probably nothing we would ever talk about on this show like the uh <laughs> Um like what are all those like like Jean Rowland movies and stuff like oh, that? Oh yeah, those are pretty obnoxiously sad. Yeah, yeah, like where it's just like in your face art house, you know, haunted looking women flitting about castles and nightgowns and garish lighting and um yeah. nonsensical plots. Like that's that's very, very, very sad.
0: Yeah, good movies.
1: <laughs> You're just describing a perfect film. <laughs>
0: but yeah. Um, this is our last episode for a little bit. Dustin mentioned we might come back and do a special thing here and there, but we'll probably pick it up again at some point. We're just both very, very busy.
1: Yeah, extremely so. Um, I also have to say, as much as I like doing the podcast, I do miss just like immediately vomiting my movie opinions at you as soon as I watch a movie, <laughs> which I have to hold back from doing when we do this. Um, cause like you're, you know, you're, you're my, uh, my toku and anime buddy like you're yeah. the one I, I like spew my toku and anime opinions at so um for at least a while i can go back to doing that as normal
0: <laughs> exactly yeah it uh i i kind of missed that too it's difficult to not just pick up my phone midway through and say oh my god
1: did you see what yeah <laughs> i know <laughs> i i feel like i've deleted so many like half written messages to you and i'm like oh save it for the show save it for the show yeah yeah
0: But we hope that you've enjoyed listening to us ramble. You know, the episodes have ranged from inept to surprisingly thoughtful, I think.
1: Yeah, I think so, too. And I I think it's odd that these three movies have resulted in what I think is our shortest episode.
0: It's true. And you know why? It's because there's
1: so little production history to be found (laughs) about them. (laughs) That's true. The obscurity made this a short episode. Um, Yeah. I would say and i and I, I want to see if you agree um, I think you do. I would say all of these are worth seeking out um, absolutely i I would say if you're into toku um, even if you're just starting out and you want to see like the variety of stuff out there um, or if you're just like a seasoned ultraman common writer fan and you want to see like the the weirder side of things, I think in either scenario these are worth your time.
0: Yeah, but I'm of the opinion that most toku's worth your time because I think even the worst toku's better than most other forms of entertainment. I'd definitely a lot of
1: rather watch a bad tokusatsu than, like, a bad regular movie.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, take that as you will. Uh, as for the availability of these movies, only Mika Droids had a proper DVD release over here and it's long out of print. Hopefully somebody like Media Blasters could pick it up at some point, which would be really sweet.
1: Discotech put out the original DVD of Mika Droid, and so there's a chance they oh. still have the rights, so who knows?
0: Yeah. That would be awesome. Uh, Orochi, who knows, but there are bootlegs circulating around. Uh same for Ultra Q. But yeah. Uh thank you for joining us on this and uh we look forward to returning eventually.
1: Yeah, for the for those of you who like stuck it out and, you know, listened from beginning to end, like, thanks. You know, this is Seb and I don't get paid to do this. No. Um, I think Seb actually spends money to do this. So, um, we appreciate it. Uh, tell people about it if you think it's good. And, um, if you get a chance, tell either Seb and I like what you like or don't like about the show or ideas for like another season, or even if there's movies you wish we'd cover, like we, I I personally would love to hear about that.
0: Yeah, for sure. If you have suggestions, um, I'm pretty accessible on, most social media platforms or even through the thk facebook page just you know comments suggestions demands outbursts send them all my (laughs) way i love to talk so (laughs)
1: outbursts
0: (laughs) all right dustin do you want to do one more one more thk for us oh yeah buddy
1: thk thk thk